If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we'll be in James 2. I'm going to start off, though, thinking about Hebrews 11, which many of you know is uh, often called the Hall of Faith. In James this morning, James is going to mention both Abraham and Rahab, both listed in the Hall of Faith. I was impacted this week by something I, I probably should have noticed before about that list of those who buy faith and the things that they did because of their faith. And I'm just going to read some of these names and notice what they did. Hebrews 11.4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. 11.7, by faith Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. 11.8, by faith Abraham obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for, for an inheritance. 11.17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 11.20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith Moses left Egypt. By faith Israel passed through the Red Sea. And there's more there. It's obvious in Hebrews 11. Faith leads to action. Faith leads to action. In the book of James, James is working hard to convince confessing Christians that faith must evidence itself in action. In the first chapter, we saw that Christians need to endure through challenging circumstances. That they need to do that in a way that's submitted to God's wisdom. But as the letter continues, James transitions from an enduring faith to an obedient faith. A faith which not only hears and accepts God's word, but a faith which also does God's word. A true religion that controls its tongue, that visits orphans and widows, that keeps oneself unstained from the world. A sincere faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, which is not polluted by favoritism. A faith which fulfills the royal law of liberty. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A faith accompanied by works. A faith that leads to action. Last time in James 2, we explored James, his proposition from verse 14, that there is a faith that cannot save. We saw in verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? It really just says it in the Greek. Can faith save him? That's not saving faith. Verses 15 to 17, we saw last time. It wasn't last week, two weeks ago. James argued that a faith without works is useless and dead. In 18 to 19, James argued that faith is proved by works, not simply by affirming biblical doctrine. Today in James 2, verses 20 to 26... James expands his previous warning against a faith that cannot save. Today's big idea, is our proposition this morning, is saving faith is accompanied by works. Saving faith is accompanied by works. I'm going to read now James 2, 14 to 26. It'll give us a little context, and uh, then we'll get into the passage. James 2, 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren... If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. One, the quote there. And then James responds, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In James 2, verses 20 to 26, James' proposition can be stated, saving faith is accompanied by works. Saving faith is accompanied by works. James' purpose is that we would evaluate whether our faith has been authenticated by works. Saints, we must not be mistaken about our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of our faith is not proven by the object of our faith. The reality of our faith is proven by our works. Now, James may sound stern, and he sounds stern. But a failure to challenge faith is a failure to love. So let's be loved then by James, the half-brother of Jesus. We'll start in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? I like how the uh, New America Standard says fellow. Who says fellow anymore? You foolish person is what the ESV says. Fellow sounds nice, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. James has no patience for the person who argues that saving faith can be separated from works. He labels the one who still needs to be convinced a foolish person. The word foolish could be translated empty or vain. It means devoid of of intellectual or moral value, empty. James bluntly says, your thinking is futile. Almost you're empty-headed. If you think someone can have saving faith unaccompanied by works, you wish to argue, you wish to argue this point, James is saying, betrays a misunderstanding of what it means to be saved. Now, although James has harsh words, and it does sound a little harsh, he patiently proves that faith without works is useless. Now, you can't see it in your English Bible, but uh, James has a word play in James' use of the word useless. To capture it in English, we might say, faith without action is inactive. Or, faith without works is not working. The word useless is, is, is not working, is is anti-working almost. That faith 
that doesn't work won't save you. Faith that doesn't work won't save you. So James is going to show those who are stubborn that saving faith is accompanied by work. And he's going to do this in two ways. He's got two examples of faith in action. And then he's going to conclude with with, with a final illustration. And, And it's one he's already used. So let's look at this first argument that saving faith is accompanied by work. And the argument is Abraham's example. We're going to see this in verses 21 to 24. The first argument is Abraham's example, verses 21 and 24. He begins in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his Isaac, his son, on the altar? I know some of you may have been disturbed seeing the title of today's sermon, Justified by Works, and your heart may have stopped beating, thinking Isaiah's finally lost it. That's what it says right here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? James begins with a historical reference that every fellow Jew would have known since childhood. It's a story that probably most of us know. It's a story of the first Jew, uh, uh, Abraham. Genesis 22 is where uh, James gets this this episode of Abraham's life from Genesis 22. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, when Abraham was 75... God promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. When he was 75 years old, he would be a great nation. 24 years later, at the age of 99, Abraham was still waiting for a child through his wife, Sarah. In Genesis 15, 4, God promised Abraham a son. The word of the Lord came to him saying, One who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So Isaac was born around a year later, as God has that plan. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham was probably or likely very close, or if not 100 years old at this point. So imagine Abraham's horror when God commanded Abraham, at least 110 years old this time, maybe 115 or so, to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son whom he had waited for 25 years. And yet Abraham obeyed. We see that in Genesis 22, verses 3 to 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Imagine waiting for this. I, I love, he rose early in the morning to obey. And then he waited three days. Dread, right? On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And perhaps we see an indication of Abraham's faith here in Genesis 22, verse 5. He's confident that both he and Isaac will return from the sacrifice. He says, I'm going to go kill my son, and we're going to return to you indicating he was hoping in the resurrection of Isaac. 
Genesis 22, verse 6. I'll, I'll continue. I'm, I'm going to skip through some verses here. So the two of them walked on together. Imagine that, that uh, silent walk. And Isaac spoke to his father, to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. It's easy to imagine that maybe Isaac was already having some problems with his eyesight at that point. And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Verse 9, And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I'm guessing that Isaac goes along with this willingly. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For, I not, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And when it says, now I know, God didn't learn anything he didn't already know, right? God is omniscient. He doesn't learn anything new. But Abraham did Prove his faith through action. Abraham demonstrated that he truly feared God. When James asked rhetorically in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? James' use of the word justified makes this a difficult verse for us, for those of us, and hopefully all of us, and if not all of us, maybe you soon, who have loved the doctrine of justification. right? So the phrase justified by works throws us off. But James is not using the word justified in the way that Paul often does, like in Romans 3.28. For we maintain, Paul says in Romans 3.28, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Man is justified by faith. And here, James is saying justified by works. What's going on? When Paul says justified in Romans 3.28, Paul speaks of God's declaring that the sinner who places his faith in Christ is righteous in God's sight. So that's what it means when, when, when God justifies in Romans 3.28. The sinner who places his faith in Christ's death on his behalf is, is righteous in God's sight. That justified sinner is as legally righteous, blameless in God's sight as Christ is. That's what it is to be declared righteous, to be justified. No longer guilty, and even further than guiltless, but righteous. Having Christ's righteous, righteousness imputed to him. Now, James, though, is using justified in a different sense. That's why you can say justified by works. James uses justified to describe those who are judged according to God's law and show themselves to be righteous, though not sinless. Okay? So being judged according to God's law and show themselves to be righteous. The evidence leads to a verdict that you're law-abiding. You're living righteously. Imagine getting pulled over for running a red light. You're given a, a, a ticket by an officer, and you have to go to court. Now imagine being in court, 
And the photograph from the photo-enforced light reveals that you didn't run the light. Is that judge still going to make you pay the ticket? No. The judge will justify you, will vindicate you in a sense, and, and throw out the ticket. You've, you've actually kept the law, and now you've been vindicated or you've been justified. And this is James' use of justified. God's command says, do this, and you've done it. Now, if you had run, run the red light, and the photo from the photo-enforced light shows you're deep in the distance, and your license plate is already growing thin, the judge can't say justly that you didn't run that red light. You can't be declared law-keeping if you're actually a lawbreaker. The charge against you would stand. The ticket must be paid. See, often when Paul uses this word justified, Paul is speaking of God's intervention toward the guilty. Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have broken God's law. And then he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or as a, a punishment satisfying, as a wrath satisfying sacrifice in his blood through faith. See, God justifies sinners as a gift of his grace. Through faith in Christ, because our fine was paid by Christ when Christ died on the cross. So instead, we have God's righteousness, his perfect law keeping given to our record. So that is the way that Paul uses justified. You, you, you've broken the law, but God declares you blameless righteous, having fully kept the law. But when James says that you're justified by works, he's, he's looking at what does the law require and saying, yeah, you are obeying God's law. So justified in Romans 3 by, with Paul refers to God's saving response to our faith in Christ when we smash God's law. Right? It's what Paul's doing in Romans 3. God's saving response to our faith when we had smashed God's law. Justified in James 2 refers to God's affirming response after our salvation when we submit to God's law. You're obeying. In chapter 2, verse 21, James, he's not saying that when Abraham was about to offer up Isaac, that God finally, after all these years, justified Abraham. You know, it's kind of like... Is he saved? Is he not saved? Am I going to declare him righteous? Am I not going to? Let's wait until he gets a final test, until we, we decide whether we're going to call Abraham saved. God wasn't waiting to justify Abraham, and we'll see that later. He wasn't waiting to forgive his sins. He wasn't waiting to count him righteous. That had happened long before. James is saying instead that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac demonstrated the validity of his faith. His willingness to sacrifice Isaac demonstrated the validity of his faith. And that's where James goes in James 2, verse 22. 
you see that faith was working with his works. Faith and works were working together in Adam's and Abraham's obedience. Faith and works were, were, were in tandem. They were hand in hand. Not to create salvation as if faith wasn't enough to save, but as a result of faith that saves. Faith will not be alone. Saving faith will not be alone. In every act of heartfelt, God-glorifying obedience, faith and works are both present. In every act of heartfelt, God-glorifying obedience, faith and works are both present. They are inseparable in obedience. So when he says, you see that faith was working with his works, it wasn't to save him, but because he had been saved. Continues in verse 22, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Perfected means to come to, 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 full, to full expression, to come to its intended goal, to, to reach a, 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 a maturity of faith. See, faith without works is faith staying an infant. But with works, the full potential of faith is seen. Faith blossoms as it works. Works are the harvest of faith. Without works, without obedience, faith is a seedling. It only grows with works. They are inseparable. Now, that's not about how we get saved, but how we live saved. The reality of Abraham's faith was seen in sacrificial obedience. When Abraham was willing to give up what was most precious to him. Faith did the hardest work that faith could. Abraham's life of faith, though dreadfully inconsistent at times. If you know Abraham's life story, there was some definite lacking of faith. But it reached its peak. Not in isolation. Not while he had a great quiet time, not in meditating, but in works, in obedience. Abraham's mature faith was proven in works. James 2.23, he continues. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, often the, the, the scripture was fulfilled means that, that, that a prophecy came to completion here. But that's, but that's not what it means here in what James is saying. James means that there in Genesis 22, we see the fullest expression. Scripture was fulfilled. We see the ultimate significance of what had been already said about Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 6. Genesis 15, 6, God had declared that Abraham did, declares that God, Abraham had believed God and that God had counted that faith as righteousness. And that happened years prior. By Genesis 22, Abraham had been in a right relationship, walking by faith with God for 40 years. But the reality of God's justification. The reality of the justification of Abraham was demonstrated most fully, 
It came to the, to, to the, to the greatest extent of maturity by Abraham's sacrifice. Faith led to obedience. If Abraham had disobeyed here, the reality of Abraham's faith would be questioned. You would question it. If he says, no, God, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done obeying you. But listen to Genesis twenty-two twelve. 12. I read it earlier. God says, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You've proved it. Abraham's faith was proven in works. And forever he'll be known as a friend of God. He was called the friend of God in Isaiah 41 verse 8. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7. He's called the friend of God. How sweet. Isn't that what you want for you? To be called the friend of God? God's commendation of Abraham followed his obedience. And listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He doesn't say you're my friends if you, if you believe in me, if you pray a prayer. You're my friends if you do what I command you. James closes this, this first argument by, by example in Abraham in verse 24. And he says, you see... And, and, and now he's not just talking to the foolish man there. The, the you opens up to the whole group. You see that a man justified by works and not by faith alone. And remember that James is not using justified in the same way that Paul does. As we saw in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, Paul speaks of how one is made right with God. James speaks of how one is how one's God-declared rightness, how righteousness imputed is revealed through actions. Paul speaks of how new life begins. James speaks of what new life brings. Paul speaks of entrance into God's presence. James of evaluation before God's presence. Paul explains how one goes from guilty to righteous. James explains that the righteous obey. Paul is combating faulty means of salvation. He's, he's often teaching against anyone who says you have to do this in order to become saved. James is exposing bankrupt ideas of assurance of how you know that you're saved. Well, I believe Jesus died for me. That's, that's not how you know that you're saved. God doesn't say to Abraham, now I know that you fear God because you believe me. That's not how his faith was proven. No, instead, now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son. Faith by itself will not result in God saying, now I know. Faith by itself is fake faith. Faith by itself is fake faith. But faith with works is the faith of the righteous. Faith by itself is fake faith, but faith with works is the faith of the righteous. It's not how we become right with God, but it is the faith of those who've been made right with God. God's command to Abraham required 
unquestionable, I mean, unimaginable sacrifice. It was a costly act of obedience. Even painful, right? Imagine those, those three days. First of all, waking up early in the morning, then those three days. Is your faith being demonstrated by costly, sacrificial obedience? Can God look at your works and justify you? Has his previous declaring you righteous led to you growing in righteousness? Let's just even think about James. Even the first couple chapters. Have you seen growth in what God is requiring you from this book? Enduring with joy. Seeking wisdom from God. Particularly the kind of wisdom that sees the world God's way. Rejoicing in your humiliation. Hearing and doing. Bridling your tongue. Visiting the destitute. Fulfilling the royal law of loving your neighbor. Not showing partiality. What is the sacrificial, costly obedience God asks of you in his word by which he can say, now I know they fear God? You don't have to start imagining, oh, I can think of something really costly. Just start with the commands he's given. As you obey, can he say, now I know they fear me. Maybe it's confessing your sin to someone you've been hiding. Maybe it's practicing hospitality as best you can in these COVID days. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Proclaiming the gospel. We... James makes his case that saving faith is accompanied by works, first by looking at Abraham's example. That was the long example. Now he has a short example, just one verse of of Rahab. And that's the second argument he makes. It's Rahab's example. We see that in verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James transitioned from this primary, the primary figure in the Jewish faith, the, 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 the first patriarch, the first Jew, to a minor character, Rahab, a, 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 a woman, a, a Canaanite prostitute in the condemned city of Jericho. The example of Abraham's faith came 40 years after walking with God. And Rahab's apparently comes after just a couple minutes of walking with God. So huge contrast, same faith. Joshua 2.1 tells the story of Joshua sending spies to check out the promised land before the people of Israel go to invade. So Joshua says to his spies in Joshua 2 chapter 1, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, that, that, now, this, this, this not, wasn't necessarily a, a, a brothel. Um, it would be a good place to hide while spying on Jericho. It was frequented by travelers and on a city wall. These men didn't necessarily do anything wrong going there. 
But when the king of Jericho heard that spies were there, Joshua 2 verses 4 through 6 picks up, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. I don't know where the spies are. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in in order on the roof. They were hidden there. In Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11, Rahab explains the reason for hiding the amen. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We're all terrified. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We've heard about your God, Rahab says. When we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And there we see Rahab's faith in the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. Following the spies' promise of of protection in Joshua 2.15, it says, She let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. Like, Like Abraham, Rahab the harlot was also justified by works. It says in James 2.25, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab had thrown her lot in with the people of Israel. She believed that Yahweh is the one true God. Her belief in God overflowed in obedience towards God, in risk-taking service for his people. Now, we don't know when God first, first brought her to, 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 to that saving faith, when God first quickened her heart. Maybe it was when she first heard from the men about the God of Israel, not just as a, a threat to be feared, but as a God of steadfast love who keeps covenants. Or maybe they, uh, she, they, she told, these men told her about the goodness of God's laws. But quickly, faith flourished into works and, and Rahab was justified. She had believed God. It was credit to her as righteousness, just as it had been to Abraham. And now Rahab was justified, revealing God's saving work in her heart through her actions. Faith is accompanied by works in Rahab, minutes after apparently saving faith. Faith was in tandem with works. Faith was fulfilled in works. There it blossomed in in fullness, in completion, in works. These weren't works done to get the God of Israel to save her. She wasn't bartering for her salvation, but works that followed faith in the God of Israel. Confidence in God was confirmed by care for God's people. Rahab's righteousness was seen in her works. She was justified by works, not again in that Pauline sense of declaring the wicked legally righteous. That happened when she first believes, but in James' sense of revealing the righteousness of those who once had been wicked. Rahab's risk-taking works demonstrated her faith. Are you willing to take risks in your works? Risks in building relationships. 
risks to your comfortable schedule, risks in hospitality, risks in generosity, risks in speaking the word, risks in confronting sin, risks in being a foster parent, risks in being a tent-making missionary, Risks in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Are you trying to live life as safe as possible? Or are you willing to take risks for God's kingdom? Why? Because faith works. And if you are saved, your faith will work. Not to save, but because you're saved. When Rahab stands before Christ, when Christ evaluates her obedience, maybe this work of, of, of saving these spies stands out. But that work will not be the only work which demonstrates her faith. See, Rahab is most remembered for rescuing spies. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us that Rahab was also one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Rahab marries an Israelite. Rahab glorified God by taking care of children. Right? By managing her home by working with her husband to cultivate their portion of the promised land. Faith that works takes risks, but faith that works also does the mundane day after day. Faith that works obeys when it costs everything, but faith that works also demands a daily dying to self. Faith, James makes this case that saving faith is accompanied by works. He does it through Abraham's example. He does it through Rahab's example. And he concludes with a illustration in verse 26. He returns to a claim he previously made in verse 17. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. So also faith by itself, it says in James 2, 17, if it does not have works, is dead. James, verse 26, 226, he illustrates the point just a little bit more vividly. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. The spirit is the distinguishing feature of the body who is alive. I know you are alive this morning. Even those of you may have briefly closed your eyes because you still have your spirit. After Jesus yielded up his spirit, all that was left on the cross was a body. Jesus had died. Faith separated from works is like a dead body. That, that faith may be many things. It may have tons of content. It may believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, as scripture alone teaches. Faith may have many things, but without works, faith is not alive. Corpses don't breathe, 
and dead faith doesn't do works. James ends this section bleakly. We're getting used to James, right? He has a little bit of an edge to him. He ends the section of faith and works by asking the nurse for the time of death of faith without works, right? Like, let's write that down. He slides faith without works on the cold steel slab into the morgue locker. Faith without works coffin is nailed shut. Now, James doesn't know the spiritual condition of each person he's writing. But he does know that saving faith is accompanied by works. He knows that saving faith acts. Now, we began by remembering the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. What will your entry in the hall of faith say? We'll say, by faith, Francis. By faith, Deborah. By faith, Ashley. By faith, Elijah. What will your entry into the hall of faith say? See, once again, I just want to make it so clear. Today is not about how someone becomes saved. It's about how someone knows that they are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no boasting. You do not work to save yourself. And then Paul swings us around real quick. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Salvation is not the result of works, but saving faith will result in works. Are you walking in those costly sacrificial good works for which you were created in Christ Jesus? Brothers and sisters, we must never ask ourselves, how few works can I do and still be saved by faith? Maybe you're looking at your life now. How few works can I do and still be saved by faith? Let's instead ask ourselves, how many works can I do for God because I have been saved by faith? How many works can you do for God because you've been saved by faith? Let's go big and go home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the balance of your word and the wisdom of your word. And here James is confronting a problem about the understanding of saving faith even before Paul wrote any letters. Father, I pray that you would do work in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would be working in us uh, the faith that entrusts all of us to yourselves that relies totally upon Jesus Christ as, as, as the one who can save us. The faith that, that you gave us, Father, may that faith that's entrusted our soul to you 
that believes that Christ took our place, may that faith erupt in our lives by such an abundance of works. May it be proven by works, demonstrated by works. May our works come to a maturity and a perfection. May Cornerstone Bible Church be known by the abundance of its works within the body, but also outside of the body, even extending to the nations. Father, may each of us have confidence that we know that Christ died for our sins. That he rose again for our justification because of the radical and costly obedience of our works. In Jesus' name, amen.